Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This one is going to be a little different from uh, what we normally do. This is going to be a basic breakdown of the school shooting uh, in Uvalde, Texas in late May. That was over at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. Of course, this podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. This podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the tools, the tactical handbook for unit leaders that's available at megearco.com and Amazon as well. Use code ANE2021 for a discount added to your cart on the Mission Essential Gear website. Also check out the Freelancers, that's a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. You can find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers. Instagram at Freelancers Blog and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you could buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com at analyze educate. And with that being said, we will get into the podcast. So just to give you guys a glimpse of what we're going to do here, I'm going to start off with a brief overview of uh, basically what happened um, as far as the shooting goes. And then a good part of this is going to be covering some testimony that was given to the Texas State Senate by Steve McCraw. He is the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. He gave, uh, I think it was like a five hour long testimony um, to the Senate and basically went over, uh, you know, an overview of what happened, um, where a lot of the confusion happened as far as the facts, of the police response, um, the official timeline, anybody that's been paying attention to this has probably noticed that, um, the facts regarding the shooting have changed multiple times. And it, now that I think about that, I should probably even state that, by the time this podcast comes out and when you're listening to it, it could have very well changed um, from then. I think we're at a place where it, it won't change a whole lot. Um, but, you know, just seeing uh, what's happened since the shooting occurred in late May with all the official changes and statements and and all that, it's possible that it could change. So I just want to make you guys aware of that. But we'll start off with a brief overview. So in the town of Uvalde, Texas, on May 24th, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos shot his grandmother in the head after they had an argument. He was living with his grandparents at the time. He stole her pickup truck and drove it to Robb Elementary School just down the street from his house. When he arrived at the school, he entered a pair of classrooms that were joined together by a shared bathroom, and he began shooting in the classrooms. Uh, those classrooms are full of fourth grade children and their teachers. Despite a very large police presence at the school just minutes after Ramos entered the campus, he was in those classrooms uncontested for over an hour. By the end of the shooting, 19 children, two teachers, and Ramos himself were dead. Multiple investigations into the shooting are still ongoing. The police response to the attack, or lack thereof, as you'll see in a bit, has been heavily scrutinized and has likely been the main focus of most of these investigations, especially considering Ramos is now dead. Um, the story regarding the incident has changed numerous times, like I said earlier, and it's not unlikely that the story will have changed by the time this episode is released. So 
Uh, like I said a little bit ago, the first thing I really want to go over is the testimony to the Texas State Senate regarding the shooting that was provided by the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Colonel Steve McCraw. And in the opening of his testimony, he uh, made the following statements or points. Uh, first point, there is, quote, compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned, we being law enforcement, over the past two decades since the Columbine massacre, end quote. Next point, quote, three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was a sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping the hallway of dedicated officers from entering classroom 111 and classroom 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children, end quote. Next point, quote, the officers had weapons, the children had none. The officers had body armor, the children had none. The officers had training, the subject had none, end quote. One hour, 14 minutes, and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in room 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-scene commander waited for a radio and rifles. And then he waited for shields. And then he waited for SWAT and waited for a key that was never needed. The post-Columbine doctrine is clear and compelling and unambiguous. Stop the killing, stop the dying. You can't do the latter unless you do the former. Certainly, some things were done well, and done very well. The teachers quickly implemented active shooter protocols prior to the subject gaining entry. In fact, one teacher was able to call 911 and report that before the subject entered the campus. Law enforcement officers were able to evacuate hundreds of children in a safe and orderly manner. The district attorney and her staff led tireless efforts to take care of the victims and their families. End quote. Next point, investigations will continue until agencies are satisfied that the information they have is correct. The next point, the subject was 18 years old. He lived with his grandparents 0.29 miles from Robb Elementary, and he attended that school in the fourth grade. In fact, in the very same classroom that he was killed in. He communicated on social media and gaming platforms, according to Colonel McCraw, his desire to commit a school shooting. Law enforcement has not identified one report made to a school or any law enforcement agency regarding the suspect prior to his actions on that day, regardless of animal cruelty and other concerning behavior, despite people taking notice of these things, multiple people taking notice of these things. And in regards to the animal cruelty, somebody within the past year or two, or maybe even himself posted a photo of him on social media holding a plastic bag full of dead cats. So that's what he means when he says animal cruelty. Eight months prior to the shooting, he was moving towards a pathway of violence, according to Colonel McGraw. He asked a family member to buy him a gun after he dropped out of high school in November. That was when he was still 17 years old. He began buying accessories for rifles. This includes magazines, slings, 
optics. He used a joint bank account with his grandmother that is currently under subpoena. At least six separate purchases were made for rifle accessories before he turned 18 years old. He purchased two 5.56 caliber rifles and over a thousand rounds of ammunition online once he turned 18. And now we're going to go into the official timeline given by Colonel McGraw. Again, this timeline has changed um, ever since the shooting happened. Well, the timeline has changed ever since the shooting happened. This timeline we have here right now is considered the uh, most up-to-date official timeline that we have. So keep that in mind. At 11.21, this is local time, of course. I think it's a central daylight time in Texas. He messaged a girl in Germany that he had just shot his grandmother and was going to shoot up a school. 11.28, the suspect crashes his grandmother's pickup truck into a ditch in front of Robb Elementary and a funeral home that was across the street. He didn't have a license, and apparently he had had issues with driving in the past, um, specifically turning his vehicle. Colonel McCraw uh, makes a point to say that um, because that could have had something to do with him just crashing his truck into a ditch, I guess. Uh, when he crashed the truck, he took with him one rifle and one backpack. At 11.29, a Robb Elementary teacher sees the truck crash from campus and calls 911 regarding a man with a rifle. Between 11.29 and 11.33, the school's resource officer responded to a call of an armed man over the radio. He responded to the south side of campus. He then mistakes a teacher for the suspect, calls in over the radio that he is with the suspect. Upon realizing this mistake, he responds to the northwest side of the campus, passing right by the shooter who was in the west side parking lot. At 11.31, now we're going back a bit, two men from the funeral home across the street went to check on Ramos, and he fires on them when he sees them coming over. He missed them both, and both men escaped. They proceeded to call 911 themselves. Also at 11.31, Ramos then moves towards the campus. He hops over a fence, and he begins shooting at classrooms. The school goes into active shooter lockdown. At 11.33, he proceeds to the West Building and opens an unlocked exterior door. He walks down the hallway and turns left towards classrooms 111 and 112. He pulls open the unlocked door into room 111 and begins shooting. He initially fired 100 rounds within a couple of minutes. At 11.35, two Uvalde Police Department officers enter the West Building through the same door that Ramos used a few minutes prior. At 11.36, there are at least seven officers in this hallway at this point. They have still not engaged Ramos. At 11.37, Ramos fires 11 more rounds, injuring two officers that were in the hallway. At 11.40, officers report that the shooter is, quote, contained in an office. Colonel McGraw says that contained is not a word you use in an active shooter situation. It's a word that you had used in a barricaded subject situation, which this is not. He's also not in an office. He's in a classroom, but the officers at this point don't realize that, apparently. Around this time, Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo, quick note, the school district has its own separate police department, so that is separate from the Uvalde 
uh, Police Department, two separate entities. Chief Pete Erdondo calls the department and asks for more officers with service rifles. Erdondo did not have his radio with him. Apparently, he thought his radio would slow him down. He asked dispatch if a teacher was in the classroom. The dispatch responds that the teacher reported shots fired. However, they were in room 102. Dispatch mistook that for room 112, which is next door to room 111, where the suspect initially entered. Chief Arredondo asked for a SWAT team to set up on the south side of the building and be prepared outside of the building. He also says officers have pistols and do not have rifles. He asked for a radio to be brought to him and a rifle as well. Chief later claims that he didn't know he was in charge at the time. This is clearly a lie, seeing as he was the ranking officer on the scene. He was the chief of police for the department, and he was clearly making orders and decisions. We also know that uh, the officers at this time did have rifles. We have that thanks to footage from body cameras and security camera footage within the school. At this point, they have rifles and body armor. This is uh, completely contradicting what Chief Arredondo passed along to dispatch at this moment. 1141, an unnamed Uvalde police officer says, we believe the suspect is barricaded in the office and is still shooting. Dispatch asks if the door is locked. The officer says he isn't sure, but they have a Halligan tool to breach the door. That's like, uh, I don't really know how to describe it. It's like this big tool they use to breach a door open, pretty much. At 11.42, three more law enforcement officers and a fire marshal enter into the east side hallway. 11.44, the shooter fires again. Uvalde PD officers instruct everyone to pull back from the area. Also at 11.44, Officer Ruben Ruiz enters the scene. His wife is a teacher in room 111, and she calls him saying that she's been shot. And I will talk about that more a little bit later. At 11.51, seven Border Patrol agents enter the West Wing. Uh, BORTAC team is en route at this time. BORTAC is uh, Border Patrol's uh, tactical team, right? And a quick note, Border Patrol was there because they actually have a pretty sizable station in Uvalde. Um, so the response time uh, really wouldn't take that long, and that's why they're showing up to this. At 11.52, the first ballistic shield enters the West Door again, Chief. Peter Dono says he's waiting for a ballistic shield to enter the room. Now, that's one of the things he's waiting to enter the room. Um, Colonel McGraw, in his testimony, goes into the fact that you do not need to wait for a shield. Obviously, if it's an active shooter, you have to go immediately, regardless of what you have. Just a note. Also at 11.52, additional arriving responders are directed to crowd control instead of all gathering up in the hallway. At 11.53, an unnamed officer informs an agent of uh, DPS, Department of Public Safety, that they need a perimeter established. This DPS agent says that law enforcement needs to go in the room if there are children still in there. The DPS agent then goes on to uh, search bathrooms and classrooms and evacuates more students. At 11.58, an unknown officer radios in that Chief Arredondo is in the classroom with the shooter and currently talking to him. At 12.03, that's completely false, by the way. Somebody 
However, that got passed along. That's just not true at all. That never happened. But at 12.03, a student from room 112 calls 911 saying that her classmates and her teacher have been shot. Also, at the same time, a second ballistic shield enters through the west door. At 12.04, a third ballistic shield enters the west door. Still no actions are taken on the suspect. At 12.09, an unnamed officer goes to get the master key from the school janitor to try and open up the door. At 12.10, a BORTAC team enters the scene. At 12.15, that same BORTAC team enters into the West Building and into the hallway. Also at 12.15, Arredondo asks for snipers to be set up on the east side rooftop of the campus. At 12.16, Chief says that a key is needed to take action and directed that no one else be allowed to enter the building. At 12.20, the fourth ballistic shield enters the building. At 12.21, the shooter fires four more rounds. Also at 12.21, Chief attempts to communicate with the shooter in English and Spanish. The communication is one way. Ramos does not respond to the Chief at all. Doesn't even acknowledge him. At the same time, officers at this point make it known that they're aware that a teacher has been shot in one of the classrooms. At 12.27, Chief Arredondo says, if we have a team ready to go, then, quote, have at it. Assuming he meant by that, like, hey, go, go into the classroom and go get this guy. At 12.28, a minute later, Chief says, quote, these master keys aren't working, bro, end quote. At 12.30, the chief says everything has been cleared in the school, but classrooms 1, 11, and 112, the door is locked and they can't get in. At 12.35, Paul Gintool enters through the west door. Again, that's a breaching tool I talked about earlier. 12.38, Chief Arredondo attempts to talk to the shooter again. Again, there's no response. At 12.41, he tries again. He tells the shooter, just so you know, we think there are injuries inside the classroom and we have cleared the rest of the building. At 12.42, again, Chief Arredondo says, we have a problem getting into the room because it's locked. At 12.47, a sledgehammer enters the building. Again, that's another tool that could be used to breach a door. And at 12.50, four Bortag agents breach the classroom finally, engage a suspect and kill him in a shootout. And that is the end of the timeline we have. We will take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. So uh, just real quick, I'm going to go over a few uh, more points that were made in McCraw's testimony to the Texas State Senate. And then uh, at that point, I'll just go over uh, a couple quick notes here um, and some of the things that have happened uh, since the shooting and especially since uh, McCraw's hearing. Um, and then uh, we'll finish it off with um, the names of all the victims from the shooting. Just a couple quick points. Uh, we now know, thanks to McCross' testimony again, um, the exterior doors leading into the school's buildings, they can only be locked from outside the school. So when the school went into active shooter protocols, um, 
teachers aren't able to lock the exterior doors from the inside, which, you know, means Ramos is just able to pull that open, uh, no problem, because it couldn't be locked from the outside. So that's obviously a big issue, right? Now, we also know that classroom doors can also only be locked from the outside. So when these classrooms go into active shooter lockdown, the teachers inside the classroom, they can't lock the doors. If they want to lock the doors, they have to go outside their classroom, lock it, but that means they leave their kids alone. So the teachers have to leave their kids alone in the classroom and then go find somewhere else to hide if they want to lock their classroom door, right? And I'm putting a lot of emphasis on this because this means the responding officers never tried to open that door because it wasn't locked. Ramos made his way into these classroom doors because they were unlocked, right? And as he's in the classroom, he couldn't lock the classroom doors himself either because he is inside, you know? So he's in there uncontested. The officers obviously never tried to open the door because if they tried to open it, it would open no issue because they could not be locked, right? So when you hear uh, Chief Arredondo and all these officers saying, we need master keys, oh, the keys aren't working, bro. The master key isn't working. We need something else. We're waiting because we don't have a working key. We're waiting because the door is locked. That's just completely false. It's either lying or it's negligence. Hopefully, hopefully it's just negligence. But still, nobody even tried to open that door because if they tried, it would have it worked. No problem. And they could have stopped this within a matter of minutes as opposed to, I think it was an hour and 14 minutes that uh, Steve McCross said earlier in his testimony, right? That's why I'm putting a lot of emphasis on this. Another big point, Border Patrol was the only agency that had working radios in the building. So the police department and the school's uh, resource officer, they have their radios, but um they actually aren't able to work inside the school buildings. You know, radios have a lot of issues. Um, you know, if you've ever used one, like, you know, law enforcement dudes, if you're listening or, you know, veterans, like when you use a radio, you have a lot of issues with radios um, and they don't work like half the time. Right. And of course, it all depends on like the quality of your radio and uh, I don't know, a ton of stuff. I'm not a I'm not a comms guy, but um that's obviously a big issue. Border Patrol, their tactical team um, had the only working radios in the building. And I assume that's because they just had better quality gear because they are a tactical team and they probably need to be able to communicate with each other a long distance, whatever. But anyway, if the school's resource officer doesn't even have a radio that could work inside a classroom, like that's a big issue because you can't communicate with anybody. And what's the point of having a radio? If you can't use it right uh, so another point within three minutes of the shooter entering the building there were at least nine officers in that hallway two of them with rifles i talked a little bit about that earlier we know this now because of body cam footage and uh footage from the schools like security cameras there was there were officers with rifles within three minutes of this guy entering a building and they could have moved on him right there 
and taken him down. Now, is it possible that some of those officers could have been shot and killed in the process? Yes, it is. It is. But you're a police officer. That's your job. If you're too worried about your own life to engage with somebody that's shooting innocent people, um, then you shouldn't be a cop. And protecting protecting your life, I guess, is like a human instinct, right? People are people are scared to die, right? They're scared to get injured. That's understandable, I guess. But but if you're so afraid for your own life, which again is understandable i'm not defending it but it is understandable because it's a natural human instinct if you're so afraid for your own life that you aren't going to uh stop somebody that's just gunning down tons of innocent people then you're probably in the wrong line of work you shouldn't be a cop that's just a thought of mine i'm not a cop Right. So if anyone wants to come after me, oh, well, you don't know you're not a law enforcement officer. No, I'm not. Right. But I think that's a pretty reasonable point. I think most people would agree with that, if not everybody. Right. Uh, So another uh, quick point I wanted to go over, I talked a little bit about Officer Ruben Ruiz. Um, His wife was Eva Morales. She was one of the two teachers that were killed in the shooting. So he is an officer with the Uvalde a consolidated independent school district police department. Like I was saying, school district has its own separate department. Uh, He was an officer with them and his wife, uh, Eva Morales, called her and said that she had been shot and she told him that she was dying over the phone. So he gets his call and he rushes to the school um, to try and save his wife. And as he rushed into the hallway, He was stopped and detained by an unnamed officer or officers. His weapon and belt were taken from him and he was escorted off the campus and he never saw his wife again. So when that story broke, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks or maybe a few weeks after the shooting, um, that was that was a pretty big deal. And that rightfully upset a lot of people. So that's why I'm highlighting it here. And now we're going to move on to Chief Arredondo. Um, Since the shooting, he has been sworn into the Uvalde City Council, which rightfully angered a lot of people. Um, He was very clearly the officer in charge of the police response, even if he wants to deny that he was. He was the ranking officer. He was making orders. He was making decisions. This is very much um, his burden to bury or carry not very um so like i said he was sworn into the city council angered a lot of people rightfully so he then requests a leave of absence from the city council on june 21st which would exempt him from attending further council meetings and quick note on that he wouldn't have to attend council meetings but he'd still be getting paid as a city council member right so that gives you insight into what kind of person this is The motion was unanimously denied by the council. Thankfully, he was also absent from uh, the council meeting that day where this motion was deliberated, and he was absent from 
the city council meeting on June 30th uh, last week. According to the Uvalde City Council rules, council members are fined $2 for missing meetings. However, uh, once they miss three consecutive council meetings, the council can vote to remove said member. Mayor Don McLaughlin had already said that he would vote to move, remove, excuse me, Arredondo if he were to miss three consecutive meetings. The other council members didn't give their opinions at the time. Erdondo has also since been placed on leave from his job as the chief of the school district's police department. Like I said earlier, he's repeatedly refused to accept responsibility for his actions or lack thereof during the shooting. Uh, many see some of his statements since the incident as blatant lies. In inter interview with the Texas Tribune, he said that he didn't consider himself in charge of the scene. And he also said that the doors leading into the classrooms where the shooter was located were locked and could not be opened. Again, this is clearly either negligence or just a blatant lie because the doors cannot be locked from the outside or from the inside. I'm sorry. Thanks to Colonel McGraw's testimony. Again, we know these uh, statements could not be further from the truth. The plethora of orders made by Arredondo that day admitted very clear that he considered himself uh, as the on-scene commander, as would any other officer, I'm sure, because he's the ranking officer. He's a chief of police. We also know that nobody even attempted to open the unlocked classroom doors, and the doors, like I said, could not be locked from the inside. So the shooter could not lock them, even if he wanted to. On July 1st, uh, one day after missing his second consecutive city council meeting, Pete Arredondo resigned from his seat on the city council, calls for him to resign or be fired from his position as police chief uh, remain. At the city council meeting on June 30th, that was the second one Arredondo missed, uh, Uvalde parents shared their frustration with local and state officials. Of course, Arredondo's absence was a major point of tension Another big point of anger among the parents was the lack of details being released to them regarding the investigation into the shooting. The sister of Irma Garcia, that's one of the teachers that was killed, she told the council, quote, nobody is giving us any answers. It's been over a month. You have no idea how frustrating it is. We're sitting here just listening to empty words, end quote. Mayor McLaughlin claimed that no details are being released because city officials could be prosecuted for releasing the details of an ongoing investigation. Attendees touted the idea of starting a recall campaign for the Uvalde County District Attorney, Christina Mitchell, over the lack of details. And in response to those frustrations, uh, McLaughlin himself offered to resign, saying, quote, I'm not a quitter, but if this community feels like I haven't done a good job as mayor and they want me to resign, I'd be happy to. And so the last thing I want to do is uh, just go over the list of victims from this horrible tragedy. We have Alexandra Ania Rubio, 10 years old. Aletha Ramirez, 10 years old. Amory Joe Garza, 10 years old. Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez, 10. Elena A. Torres, 10. Elena Amia Garcia, 9. Eva Morales, 44. Irma Garcia, 48. Jackie 
Cazares, nine. Jackie and Annabelle Rodriguez were actually cousins and best friends. They were in the same classroom that day. Jayla, Nicole, Seguero, 10. Jace, Carmelo, Luvianos, 10. Jace and Jayla were also cousins in, in the same classroom at the time. Jose Manuel Flores Jr., 10. Layla Salazar, 11. Mete Juliana Rodriguez, 10. McKenna Lee Elrod, 10. Miranda Mathis, 11. Nevea Bravo, 10. Rogelio Torres, 10. Tess Marie Mata, 10. Uzziah Garcia, and Xavier Lopez, 10 years old. 21 victims, 19 children, two teachers. That's all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate. And that is all I have for you guys. We'll see you around.